Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. All right, how's it going? Everybody good? Anybody not good? Want to admit it? No, we're not going to do that this morning, are we? Hey, it's so good to see you. Uh, This morning, we are kicking off a new teaching series called Filter, and we're going to be looking at what it means to learn how to think and believe from a biblical worldview. And so uh, this is going to be an exciting next few weeks that we're going to jump into as we talk about some things that I believe are really important. Uh, But we're going to do something today that I don't typically like to do. Uh, Most often when we come up, I like to set up this sermon and then I like to jump into scripture pretty quickly. And I want to get right into God's word. Uh, However, today what we're going to try to do is have some time that we take at the beginning of this series to set up some things that are really important for us to understand and to kind of be at the same place on from the very beginning. And then what we're going to do is after I set this up for a period of time, we're going to come back toward the end of the message and we're going to jump into the word of God and we're going to see how God's word addresses the things that we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. All right. So uh, forgive me if we take just a little while and we don't get straight to the word of God. Uh, It's super important. It is the most central thing that we can have in front of us, and I love being there. Today, we're just going to take a little bit more time than normal to get there. So uh, hang in there with me. Uh, Here's what I would say. Everything in the world uh, is looked at through a lens, and the way you look at the world determines how you're going to think, act, and believe. And so for us, every person in this room has a filter through which they view the world around them and the things that are happening in the world as life unfolds. So when we ask the question, what is a worldview? We're really trying to understand how do I see the world around me and what do I do as a person living in the world based on my views? All right, so that's kind of the big question this morning is what is a worldview? And here's the answer that I would come to and I would point you to. A worldview is the lens through which we view the world and make decisions about how we're going to live, right? So the worldview that you have impacts how you live because every aspect of your life is filtered through it. When you look at the world and something happens, you go, man, how am I supposed to think about that? Today's September 11th. In 2001, planes crashed into buildings in our country and there was an obvious terrorist attack that was taking place. How am I supposed to think about that? How am I supposed to react to that? My worldview determines how I approach those kinds of major events. And not just major events, but all events in life. Your worldview will dictate how you think and how you respond. And so for most people, they'll have this kind of idea of going, okay, well, my worldview, I act on it purposefully. I know what I think. I know what I believe. I know where I stand on some things. So when things happen around me in my life, in the world in general, I approach it purposefully and through the worldview by which I live. Some people approach things that happen more reactively or even ignorantly of just going, well, my response to those things reveals what my worldview is. I didn't necessarily know that I held that worldview or it wasn't an intentional, purposeful worldview that I came to, but the reaction that I have to things in my life kind of indicate what my worldview is. And so for us as believers in Jesus, we want to come to a place 
where we understand how to have, I hope that you'll come to a place where you agree, that we need to have a biblical worldview. That we want to look at life through the lens of Scripture. And we want to determine how we live and how we respond to things in life through the teaching of God's Word. And so here's what is important for us to know from the very beginning this morning. Most people's worldview is established between the ages of 15 months and 13 years old. I want that just to sit on us for just a second. Most people's worldviews are established between the ages of 15 months and 13 years old. Guess what that means? If you're a parent in the room this morning of someone in that age range, your children are developing, your grandchildren are developing worldviews that will impact them for the rest of their life. And if your thought process is bringing them to church one hour a week will give them the grounding that they need to have a biblical worldview by which they will live for Jesus and the King of glory for the rest of their life, you're probably missing the mark. Because your kids are going to spend dozens and dozens and dozens of hours in educational settings, they're going to spend dozens and dozens and dozens of hours, if they're like my children, and maybe I'm just a bad parent, in front of YouTube. They're going to find things that the world tells them to believe. They're going to hear from other people than their pastors and their parents about how to think and live and believe in the world. And the crucial stage of life that we have the opportunity to invest in. It's one of the reasons that we pour so much resource and time and energy into our children's ministry, into resourcing people, and into helping parents. It's why we're going to have a parent seminar this coming Tuesday to help equip people more deeply, to know how to live these things out in your home, to equip kids to know what it looks like to know the Word of God, to understand the Word of God, to look at life through the lens of the Word of God. Because by the time they hit 13 years old, most of them have established how they will look at the world around them, at least in the most basic questions that we ask as humans. So every preteen and every adult in this room has a fairly established worldview, and every worldview requires faith. Every worldview that people have requires faith. And so when you think about the worldviews that are out there, whether it's being an atheist, being an agnostic, being a humanist, secularist, a naturalist, a Christian, Every single worldview requires faith. And so we're going to talk through how some of these things live out. And some of us hold to a lot of different types of worldviews, uh, and especially in our world, secular humanism, naturalism, atheism, agnosticism. Uh, some people have just a very uh, deep-rooted thought process of the worldview being through political lenses, where we get all of our content from the talking heads on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, and like that's how we've learned to think is through the lens of political things, right? And so all of these different filters by which we look at the world are taking place around us. And as Christians, it's important for us to know how to choose the right filter to look at life through. It's like when I was a kid and I put on glasses for the first time. I didn't realize how blind I was until my mom stuck a pair of glasses on my face and I went, whoa, the world is so different than I thought. That's not just a big brown stick with a green glob on top of it. Those are individual leaves on that tree. Like crazy. The lens becomes the filter 
through which we learn to see the world clearly. And that's why it's important for us to develop as Christians a lens through the Bible that we learn to look at the world with. So what you believe shows where you place your faith. Even atheists who say God doesn't exist, they operate in faith. Uh, This week I read something in a piece talking about uh, how there's growing doubt to classical Darwinian evolution among evolutionary biologists. Uh, And they're creating these new definitions of evolution to kind of continue to support claims that they hold. So those existing evolutionists are attempting to reassure people. One of the guys, and I'm going to butcher his name, his name is Douglas uh, Futuyama. He recently stated, just because we don't know how evolution occurred does not justify doubt about whether it occurred, right? Translation, just because we can't recreate it in a lab doesn't mean we doubt that it happened. Guess what that is? That's a faith statement. I can't prove it, but I believe it. So anytime that somebody looks at you as a Christian and goes, well, you can't prove your belief in God, so therefore I'm not going to believe it. Well, none of us can prove for 100% almost anything. If the burden of proof is make sure you prove 100% that that's real, probably few of us would believe anything. And a lot of people will go, well, I tell you what, if God would just open up the skies and show his face, then I would believe. Well, guess what? He did that with the Israelites over and over and over again, and they still lived in doubt. They still went against him. Even without anything that was hindering them from seeing the presence of God, they still had doubts, and they still wrestled. So we live in faith. We're always going to be people who live in faith. It takes faith to believe in evolution the same way it takes faith to believe in God, and it takes faith to believe there is no God. All worldviews require faith because there's no way we can know with 100% certainty what you believe is true. We step out in faith. That's what God calls us to. Now, there are many worldviews, uh, but what I hope to do is to convey in this series what it means to have a biblical worldview. So let's define that just for a moment. And I'm going to take some things from George Barna. He says this, a biblical worldview is the filter that causes a person to make their choices in harmony with biblical teachings and principles. So when I'm going to approach things in the world, I want to utilize scripture and the biblical teachings to bring harmony to my life so that I'm in line with the teachings and the principles of the word of God. That's what it means to have a biblical worldview. My objective today isn't to like prove to you and go, hey, there's 18 reasons why I can prove that the Bible is believable and trustworthy. I'm just going to come from the perspective today of going, if there are all these worldviews out there and we're Christians who claim to follow Jesus Christ, then our worldview is supposed to be that of a biblical worldview, Christ-centered based on his word. This is going to be our starting point and we're going to jump into it going, the Bible informs us how to think about the events of life as the primary lens through which I understand the things happening in Scripture. And you may assume, hey, because I'm a Christian, because I come to church every week, I just assume I have a biblical Christian worldview. But what research is showing us at this juncture is that that's not the case. Uh, In fact, it's not even the case among pastors like myself. Barna's latest research that was just released this year, earlier this year, says that only 37% of American Protestant pastors hold to a traditional biblical worldview. 
37% of pastors. By the time you start surveying youth pastors and children's pastors, the numbers are 7% and 4%. And so we start looking at those numbers and going, wait a minute, these are the people who are equipping the saints for the work of service in the church to go out and live biblically in the world as followers of Jesus Christ. How are they going to do that if they themselves don't hold a biblical Christian worldview? And when you think about those kinds of numbers, when we get to that percentage place where we start going, man, if that's true of pastors and teachers, what about just the rest of Americans? 6% of American adults would claim to hold to a biblical Christian worldview. So this is a big deal. This is why we're talking about this. This is why I bring it up. For the last several months, this has been really heavy on my heart because these things should shock us. But when we really get down to it, we start looking at our own lives and going, well, do I hold to a biblical Christian worldview? And here's what we would find. And again, Barna's research bears these things out. Most American Christians, the worldview they really hold to, you might say, man, I have a biblical Christian worldview, but the worldview that most Christians really hold to is called syncretism. Syncretism would say, well, I like this bit of worldview over here, and I like a little bit of this view over here, and I kind of like this part of that worldview, and and I really am going to embrace this worldview from this side of things, and and I'm going to pull all of those together, and I'm going to copy and paste and make my own version of what it means to be a Christian. And by and large, what I really want to be expressed for me is that my Christianity and the worldview that I hold makes me happy. And God performs in a way that takes care of me. And as long as it lines up with what I think and believe, it's a good worldview. But if it goes against what I think and believe, I don't want anything to do with that. Even if the Bible claims it boldly. And so what we end up having is Christians who create God in their image rather than us being created in his. And the terminology that gets used in this is moral therapeutic deism. That we kind of think about God in a sense like he's our buddy. And we kind of keep him in our shirt pocket. And when we need God for something, when we need Jesus for something to make our life better, to fix a situation, to handle something I can't handle on my own, I pull him out. And I ask him to intervene, to make life easier for me, to fix my problem, to deal with my issue. And then as soon as that's over and we're back to kind of some cool waters and calm waters and cool sailing, Jesus goes right back in my pocket and I put my buddy away until I need him again. And that's how most Christians in America are thinking today. Jesus is just my moral buddy whose therapy time comes out when I need my life fixed. And so we say all these things this morning to get to a place where we start looking at some pretty astounding numbers. Because here's, again, what Barna's research shows and points out. Three out of four people with this kind of worldview consider themselves Christians But 95% do not consider success in life to have anything to do with consistent obedience to God. So three out of four go, oh yeah, I'm I'm a Christian. But when you go, are you living obediently to God and the teachings of his word? 95% would say, no, that's not important. 
just important about what I think, what I feel, what I believe. Um, three out of four do not believe that God is the basis of truth. Nine out of 10 do not believe that the Bible is true and relevant communication between God and us. Therefore, they rarely read the Bible, but they still consider themselves what? Christians. I don't need the word of God to inform my life, but I'm a follower of God. I'm a Christian. So I'll tell you all these things this morning just to ask the question to you and to ask you to be honest with yourself. When we talk about these kind of big ideas, where do you fit? And for a lot of people, again, it may be easy to come in here and go, well, because I claim to be a Christian, because I go to church all the time, I'm a biblical worldview Christian. But are you really? And so let me give you some questions to ask yourself that will be helpful as you think about these things. Because as followers of Jesus, we want to have a worldview guided by his word and under his authority. So here's three questions you can ask yourself. Number one, what do I believe? What do I really believe? What do I believe about God? What do I believe about his word? What do I believe about sin? What do I believe about salvation? I mean, what do I believe? Have you ever just taken time to ask the question, what do I really believe? Here's number two. Why do I believe that? And that's a good question, right? Hey, when, when something happens in the world and I immediately jump to a response and I go, that's what I believe about that. Why? Because it's what you want to be true? Because it's what you think is right? Or because the Bible gives answer to those things? Because the Bible is the lens you're looking through. Why do you believe that? And then here's the last question. Where does this belief lead? If I believe that, and here's why I believe it, where does it take me? And here's the little statement that I, I kind of was thinking about this week, is that you ask the question, where does your worldview take you? Where does your worldview take you? And for a lot of people, you could look at some different things, and depending on what the worldview is, they would go, well, my worldview takes me to some places where I don't need a God. I don't need relationship. I don't need anyone to speak into my life. I've got it all figured out. Your worldview is always going to take you somewhere. So where does your worldview take you? Every belief you have is moving you somewhere. Some of your beliefs are leading you closer to God. Others are moving you farther away from him. But as you make decisions in life, look further down the road. And here's where I would challenge if there's teenagers and younger kids in the room this morning. Here's what I would challenge you to think about. You typically live so in the moment that the things you think and believe right now have no consequence for you any further down the road than what's going to happen next. Worldview challenges us to think about where's this going to take me in the long term. So consider that. As you're making decisions about what you believe, about what God is like, what the word of God teaches, where is it going to take you? And for us, and the last thing that I want to kind of share before we jump into scripture is this, that all worldviews are basically trying to answer the same simple questions. And so as we think about worldview, here's what we're trying to get. Whether you're atheist, agnostic, humanist, Christian, whatever, you want to know and you endeavor to answer questions like this. Number one, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where, where did we come from? 
Why are we here? That's a huge question that every person on planet Earth is trying to answer, that every religion espouses to answer, that every non-religion <laughs> espouses to answer. Atheists are asking this question. Where do we come from? Why are we here? Right, number two, what's wrong in the world? We can easily look outside of ourselves and we can look inside of ourselves and we can see that things are broken. The world is not what it should be. Things are not good in all cases. So what's wrong with the world? That's a huge question that everybody's asking. Number three, how can it be fixed? And every worldview is attempting to answer the question, how do I or how does my belief and the people that are in like-mindedness with me, how do we fix the issue? So how do we fix a broken world? How do we fix climate issues? How do we fix relation issues? How do we fix uh, all kinds of different things? Whatever your worldview is, is how you're going to speak into and answer those questions. If you have an atheistic worldview, you answer them one way. If you have a materialistic worldview, you have different answers. If you hold to a biblical worldview, you answer those questions through the lens of Scripture. And as Christians, our desire is to hold to the Word of God. So that's where I want us to turn next. As we've set all this up for this series, we're going to start answering the question. We just want to begin with question number one today. Where do we come from? Why are we here? And to get that, we're going to jump into Genesis chapter one. In fact, throughout this series, we're going to find, I believe, that Genesis one, two, three, and the first part of chapter four address and answer these worldview questions. And so today we're just going to start with, how did we get here? Why are we here? And so for the next couple of minutes, I just want us to dive in to that. Again, these things, they're not blind faith. Uh, as Christians, we, we base our beliefs on God's word, and God's word is proven to be true over and over again, theologically, in archaeology, in science, in descriptions of the universe. Like There are things that the word of God talks about and describe with great detail and they play out to be true. So here's what we find in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and it was empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. All right, so when we jump into Genesis chapter one and we ask this question, well, where do we come from? The answer from the Bible's perspective for that is that God created. Everything that exists was brought into being by a God who is eternal and is uncreated. So you have an uncreated God creating everything that there is in the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the biblical answer to this, and again, I want you to understand and know, I'm not trying to cram Jesus down your throat. And my objective is not to go, you better leave here believing what I believe as far as what the Bible teaches. I just want to ask some simple questions. Why do you believe what you believe? How did you get there? Where's it taking you? But if you're a follower of Jesus, then it seems to make sense that we would want the word of God to inform how we think about the world and the issues that take place in the world. 
And so we start with this very idea. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that word for God that's used here is Elohim. And Elohim can be used in different ways in Scripture. But in this case, Elohim is used as a plural. In the beginning, God. It's a singular that has plurality attached to it. That from the very first pages of Scripture, Moses is writing and trying to tell us there is a God who's out there, and he's one God, but there's plurality to him. In fact, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So even in this very first passage, we see God, Father, who is designing creation in his spirit hovering over the surface of the waters. When you move into the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1 is going to tell us that Jesus is the agent of God's creation, that by him all things were created, and through him all things were made, and all things that were made were made for him as well as through him. And so Jesus is the agent. God is the author and originator of creation. Jesus is the agent of creation. The Spirit of God is over all of creation. And so we see from the very beginning that there is a triune God that's a part of this and that he is creating everything. The Bible tells us that God speaks everything into existence. There's a beginning to the universe. This is a starting point. And for generations... There were people who said, well, the, earth, the, the universe is just eternal. It's timeless. It's always been in existence. And it's chaotic, and it's unplanned, and it's uncontrolled, and it's just there. But what we see in this is that God spoke this into existence. And here's what we start to find now. A lot of us have an issue with something called the Big Bang Theory, and that's fine. But did you know that when the Big Bang Theory was originally espoused, that it was espoused and found by scientists who said, we have to keep Christians from learning about this. Because if they learn about this, here's what they're going to find. There's a beginning point to the universe. It's not eternal. It's not always been there. Something started this whole thing. And so Christians eventually, or essentially were kept from learning about these kinds of things, because the atheists were afraid that they would go, oh, that disproves your thoughts. And for the atheist, it means that there's a starting point to all of this. Over time, it kind of spins and Christians start to get to a place where atheists start to go, well, this is the Big Bang and there is a beginning to the universe. However, it's not planned. It's still random. It's completely by chance. There's no creation with a creator. But today, what we're finding is there's more and more empirical data that supports a universe that has a beginning point and that supports the belief of biblical creation. In fact, there's a teaching series that's out there right now that I would love to point you to, a guy named Chip Ingram. If you're not familiar with him, I would really encourage you. He's got a book out on this, and he's taught a teaching series on it. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. You can find it on his, his platforms. Uh, but Chip Ingram has a series called Why I Believe. And there's a two-part message that's there, and there's a whole thing in his book uh, about why I believe in creation. Uh, it's phenomenal. You need to check it out for yourself. He describes things way more eloquently than I would and could. Um, but here's what we're finding. Even in the most recent findings and research that's pointing to a starting point in creation, if you've heard about the James Webb Telescope that's out in space right now, sending back images to Earth, the most astounding images that we've ever seen of things in space. But it's telling us a story, it's painting a story as they measure red light in the universe. 
that everybody believed at some point was just billions and billions and billions of, of light years away and couldn't be measured and there was no starting point to it. What we're finding through the creation of this telescope and its information that's relaying back to us is it's measurable and it works and it fits in the framework of a beginning point that's throwing light across the universe, that's measurable, it's understandable. It fits with everything else in the scope of what we know about the universe. Everything is continuing to point back, and Scripture just simply says it this way. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Like everything that we see in the universe is under God's design control. And as we think about these things, I want to point us to one last thing that we're going to do this morning. We're going to take about six minutes and watch a clip here. Um, because here's what I've been just discovering and finding more and more as I research some of these things. And I love that the universe is perfectly dialed in and there's a fine tuning to it. If you don't believe in a creator, you would probably expect to find a random universe. If there's no creator, then things would just happen by chance. It would be random. It would be chaotic. It would be off balance. Some things, some places would function one way. Other things, another place would function another way. But what we're finding, the more we study, the more science comes to a reality of how things work in our universe. And by the way, science isn't something for us to be scared of. I'm so thankful for a lot of great scientists in our church. But as science explores more of these things, here's what they're finding. There is fine-tuning to the universe that's life-giving and transformative. And so I want you to see this video because it, it really outlines this well. And it starts to put a cherry on top of what we're talking about this morning as we close up. So watch this short video uh, and check out what it looks like to live in a universe that if there's a creator, if there's a God who's behind all of this, that he would fine-tune things for life on earth to be able to exist. Check this out. From galaxies and stars down to atoms and subatomic particles, the very structure of our universe is determined by these numbers. These are the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe. Scientists have come to the shocking realization that each of these numbers has been carefully dialed to an astonishingly precise value, a value that falls within an exceedingly narrow, life-permitting range. If any one of these numbers were altered by even a hair's breadth, no physical, interactive life of any kind could exist anywhere. There'd be no stars, no life, no planets, no chemistry. Consider gravity, for example. The force of gravity is determined by the gravitational constant. If this constant varied by just one in 10 to the 60th parts, none of us would exist. To understand how exceedingly narrow this life-permitting range is, imagine a dial divided into 10 to the 60th increments. To get a handle on how many tiny points on the dial this is, compare it to the number of cells in your body or the number of seconds that have ticked by since time began. If the gravitational constant had been out of tune by just one of these infinitesimally small increments, the universe would either have expanded and thinned out so rapidly that no stars could form and life couldn't exist, or it would have collapsed back on itself with the same result. 
no stars, no planets, and no life. Or consider the expansion rate of the universe. This is driven by the cosmological constant, a change in its value by a mere one part in 10 to the 120th parts would cause the universe to expand too rapidly or too slowly. In either case, the universe would, again, be life-prohibiting. Or, another example of fine-tuning. If the mass and energy of the early universe were not evenly distributed to an incomprehensible precision of one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd, the universe would be hostile to life of any kind. The fact is, our universe permits physical, interactive life only because these, and many other numbers, have been independently and exquisitely balanced on a razor's edge. Wherever physicists look, they see examples of fine-tuning. The remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. If anyone claims not to be surprised by the special features that the universe has, he's hiding his head in the sand. These special features are surprising and unlikely. What is the best explanation for this astounding phenomenon? There are three live options. The fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Which of these options is the most plausible? According to this alternative, the universe must be life-permitting. The precise values of these constants and quantities could not be otherwise. But is this plausible? Is a life-prohibiting universe impossible? Far from it. It's not only possible, it's far more likely than a life-permitting universe. The constants and quantities are not determined by the laws of nature. There's no reason or evidence suggests that fine-tuning is necessary. How about chance? Did we just get really, 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 really lucky? No. The probabilities involved are so ridiculously remote as to put the fine-tuning well beyond the reach of chance. So, in an effort to keep this option alive, some have gone beyond empirical science and opted for a more speculative approach, known as the multiverse. They imagine a universe generator that cranks out such a vast number of universes that, odds are, life-permitting universes will eventually pop out. However, there's no scientific evidence for the existence of this multiverse. It cannot be detected, observed, measured, or proved. And the universe generator itself would require an enormous amount of fine-tuning. Furthermore, small patches of order are far more probable than big ones. So the most probable observable universe would be a small one inhabited by a single, simple observer. But what we actually observe is the very thing that we should least expect, a vast, spectacularly complex, highly ordered universe inhabited by billions of other observers. So even if the multiverse existed, which is a moot point, it wouldn't do anything to explain the fine-tuning. Given the implausibility of physical necessity or chance, the best explanation for why the universe is fine-tuned for life may very well be it was designed that way. A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect monkeyed with physics and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. 
The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. There is for me powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. It seems as though somebody has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. So a biblical worldview says that there's a creator, that he stepped into nothingness and made everything. And here's what we find as we continue to read in Genesis chapter one. If you've got a creator who is all powerful and who has sovereign authority, that creator could be incredibly difficult to have a relationship with because that would be someone that you would fear. But here's what you find as he continues to unveil his creation Every time he creates, he says, and it was good. It was good. Everything that God creates is good. God is our definition of good. And when we come into a relationship with him, we find that he is a good creator. He's a good sovereign. And the authority that he has over us is meant for good. Our place is coming along and saying, will I believe in him? Will I trust his word? And will I place myself under his authority. And as Christians, my hope as we talk through this series is that we will find this place where we will say, I don't only want to just believe or claim to believe that the Bible is true, but I want it to influence how I think and how I live. Because that's the objective, is that we don't just say, I know that there's a God out there, but I want to live for him. And I want to have my life in his hands. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.